Welcome to Book Blast. Our podcasts and associated reviews in online journal, The Book Blast Diary, are for writers, translators and curious readers who want a behind-the-scenes snapshot of independent publishing and world writing in translation, often with a Francophile flavour. Today I'm delighted to interview Natasha Lehrer, journalist and translator of numerous books from the French, including Nathalie Léger's Suite for Barbara Loden, which won the Scott Moncrief Prize in 2017. Her latest translation is Consent, Vanessa Springora's sexual abuse memoir about her relationship in the mid-80s with the French author Gabrielle Matzneff. It has sparked an international outcry, and Matzneff has gone into hiding on the Italian Riviera. He is set to stand trial in September this year. This podcast is being recorded using Zoom. Good afternoon. So nice to be here. Do you need to have an affinity with a subject before agreeing to translate a book? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I mean, I've translated Georges Bataille. Can't say I have any affinity with him. Um, To take a sort of relatively extreme example, I don't think so. I think you need to have sympathy for the book. You need to like it. If you don't like it, I think it's very hard. I haven't had that experience, but... I wouldn't like to translate a book that I felt was really contrary to something I believed in, or indeed that wasn't very good, that I didn't think was very good. Uh, But I don't think, I think this issue about affinity is very complicated and I would hate to imply, I don't agree with the idea that a a woman writer has to be translated by a woman or a male writer has to be translated by a man. In this case, I don't think that it's a requirement that one has a history of sexual abuse or trauma to be able to translate this book. How did you come to translate Vanessa Springora's sexual abuse memoir, Consent? I was contacted by The Guardian, who asked me to write about it when it was first published in French. And I then subsequently wrote a long piece about evolving attitudes towards consent in France for The Observer. And subsequent to that, I was asked to translate the book. So I had a kind of, uh, I already had a connection with it. I was already kind of very involved in it before I was asked to translate it. What was your working process? How involved was the author? She wasn't, actually. That's the way that I, the way that I work. Unlike many other translators, I don't, I don't have a relationship in advance of translating a book. I often develop a relationship in the course of it or afterwards. And Vanessa and I have become email friends. She loves the translation. She's been, she's really thrilled about it. But actually, I was not in contact with her at all while I was doing it. It's not only the French literary establishment that hero worships writers. Authors are universally admired. For young job seekers, to combine a love of literature with a job in book publishing is a dream ticket. When you first read Consent... How did you feel about the very exclusive world of publishing that it portrays? Well, it was something I'd always had a sense of. I'd always had this feeling that French publishing was a very tight little coterie uh, that was very, very difficult to break into. I didn't really have any experience of it. Um, I think to some extent it's, it's not so different in the UK. I think it's a, it's probably not quite as tight a coterie, but nonetheless, I think both in both countries it's quite difficult to break into. Um, it's quite exclusive. It's probably to a large degree dependent on who you know rather than what you know. And it's good to think that some of these things are being talked about now now in terms of access. There's a history of women going into publishing as secretaries and working their way up to the top. But I think women getting into publishing is not really an issue anymore. 
On the other hand, you know, for, for minorities of any kind, it's incredibly difficult to break into publishing. And so it's really good to see that, you know, these things are being addressed properly in the UK, much less in France, I think. As in many things, France is often quite behind the curve. And I think it's no different in the issue of in the world of publishing, sadly. You live in France and are married to a Frenchman. Can you give insights into why, in your view, in a country that is personified by Marianne, the goddess of liberty, and prides itself on its ideals of liberty, equality and fraternity, coercive control and the patriarchy still have such a tight grip? Well, we've all heard of the French exception, and this is, as they say, no exception. Um, the French have sort of held on to certain ideas from the Ancien Régime, pre-revolutionary ideals of relationships between men and women and power, the seduction and gallantry, galanterie à la française, as it is called. Uh, these all date back to pre-revolutionary times. And for, you know, interesting reasons, they were not cast out with the French Revolution. I think it's always worth remembering that France has remained an incredibly patriarchal society in spite of the revolution, in spite of these very high-minded ideas. So, for example, when you talk about universal suffrage, people often very proudly say, you know, we have had universal suffrage since the mid-19th century. I always like to remind somebody who tells me that, that universal suffrage referred exclusively to men. Women did not get the vote until 1945. Uh, so I think... That is just one of the strange paradoxes of post-revolutionary France, that relation, gender relationships remained incredibly unequal. There will be plenty of people who will argue that galanterie à la française endows a woman with a certain power. She gets to agree or to reject a man's advances. But as we've seen in this great slew of memoirs, rejecting men's advances is not always straightforward. It's a paradox. Springora's mother and father are libertarians of the 68 generation and were woefully neglectful parents. How have books like Consent, Exposing Paedophilia, or La Familia Grande, Exposing Incest, Flying in the Face of the Taboo that You Should Never Wash Your Dirty Laundry in Public, created the momentum to generate long-lasting change? Well, it's nice to think that it might, but we have to wait and see. We're going to have to bide our time to see whether or not there really will be long-lasting change as a result of these books. I mean, certainly I don't think these books could have been written without Me Too. That gave a real momentum, even though it was very controversial in France, very famously controversial with the letter that Catherine Deneuve signed. There were obviously people who went out of their way to, to disagree with the Me Too movement. But I think it gave a lot of young women a voice. There's been now recently a Me Too incest uh, hashtag on Twitter that was really devastating. And there seems there's evidence that one in ten young people has been the victim of incest in France. It's absolutely shocking. Now these, as you say, you don't wash your dirty laundry in public. This is all stuff that has to stay hushed up and nobody talks about it. But it's now being talked about. There is an impetus for change. There's an impetus for change. There's an enormous amount of d domestic violence, enormous amount of feminicide, absolutely devastating figures, the number of women who are killed by their partners. I, I don't want to say a figure, actually, because I, I'll get it wrong, but very, very substantial figures of women killed by their partners. You know, and often they've been to the police and the police have done nothing. It's a real issue, a very dramatic issue that's come to the fore. Macron has promised in both cases, in the, in the issue of incest and the, the issue of domestic violence, to do something, but I'm not quite sure what that would be. Legislation is sort of slowly catching up. So we're talking about 
perhaps the crime of statutory rape will finally be brought onto the books. But we'll have to see. You know, I think change in France is always incredibly slow. Let's not let's not beat about the bush. That is a fact. It is to be hoped that this slew of people coming out and, and telling, you know, especially in terms of celebrities, there's an enormous number of accusations being brought up against celebrities now by their own children or by people who've worked with them. And hopefully we'll see some change in attitudes and in behaviour. The first public testimonies against sexual abuse and incest in France date from 1986 when Eva Thomas spoke publicly on TV channel Antenne 2 about being raped by her father at the age of 15. Her book, The Rape of Silence, came out in 2000. In 2011, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the man nicknamed the Great Seducer, was arrested in New York on charges of sexually assaulting Nafisatu Diallo, a hotel worker. What are some of the other recent allegations challenging toxic masculinity and the culture of impunity in France? There's an actor who's called... There's an actor called Richard Berry. His daughter has accused him of inappropriate behaviour when she was a child. There is a Guadeloupian journalist who's died quite a long time ago and it's just emerged. His daughter is a journalist and also a, I believe she's on the Conseil de Paris, the Conseil Municipal de Paris, and he's just been accused of, I believe, uh, paedophilia. Depardieu has just been accused of rape. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of stuff coming out. You know, this contrasts quite interestingly with Dominique Strauss-Kahn, where very famously there was a young journalist who spoke about him assaulting her in, in her apartment, Tristan Banon, her name was. And he, she spoke at the time, I believe. No one wanted to hear. Just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. That was just what, you know, she was, she, she was probably considered she should be flattered to have such a great and powerful man trying to seduce her. That was almost certainly the attitude. That's certainly the scene in Consent where Springora goes to see the philosopher, the Romanian-born philosopher, Cioran, and she goes to visit him and he says, but you should be flattered. It's an amazing thing to be the wife of a brilliant writer, to be the woman of a brilliant writer. It's an extraordinary scene. And this has played out multiple times. So what's interesting is that where in 2011 nobody listened to her, now everybody's listening. And there was an incredible episode at the César last year when Polanski won all the prizes and the actress who walked out. Yes, a group of women, two women, didn't they? Two women walked out. I remember reading about that. That's right. And it created an absolute stink. And it's brilliant because now women are finally finding the confidence to say, we can talk about this and we can create, we can really spoil things. And there's a there's a really, there's a public mood now, whereas this is entirely acceptable and desirable. Simone de Beauvoir joined forces with Jean-Paul Sartre, Gilles Deleuze, Roland Barthes, Philippe Soler, André Glucksmann and Louis Aragon in 1977, arguing for the decriminalisation of sex between adults and minors. What was the basis for this ideological position and what does it say about the relationship between culture and power? What you're talking about is a, is a curious episode and actually very creepy. This was Matzneff himself who wrote this open letter, which he then got all these incredibly well-known intellectuals to sign. I'm not sure, and most of them aren't alive anymore, to explain themselves. Yeah, yeah. It was all a bit free, free love. We might consider how extraordinary it is that Le Monde published it 
That's a slightly different issue. There was equally a letter in uh, Liberation, I believe. But we know that the times were very... There was a great ferment of, of emotion around issues of sexuality. It was an extraordinarily repressed period leading up. You know, France was the most... Inst- crazily repressed country catholic and you know men were entitled to do what they wanted and women had a strict role i mean even if women worked they still were required to to fill a specific role yeah yeah there were women had i mean as in the uk divorce was not an equal pact women couldn't get divorced uh, and there was no no fault divorce you know there had to be a fault it was, a, it was a very strange time. Incredibly interesting, something I didn't know, but I think is very telling, is that if a woman changes her name when she gets married and takes her husband's name, when she gets divorced, her husband is entitled to force her to go back to her maiden name. So it's a, it's a very, very conservative Catholic culture. May 68 came along and it was this exciting revolution and it was a sexual revolution and it was an everything revolution. I think people were just caught up in it. So I, I don't hold too much store by this letter per se or the signatories of it. It was just all part of speaking out against convention. And, you know, and that was a good thing because France must have been a really, really suffocating culture before May 68. Springora is slut-shamed when her friends at school gossip and well-respected adults, including E.M. Sioran and his doting wife, chastise her for wanting to leave her abuser. Institutional misogyny and the suppression of women's voices in the community are issues that feature in quite a few of the books you have translated. What is your perspective of feminism in France as opposed to the UK and US? Well, I always thought it was rather remarkable. I studied, um, I studied a lot of uh, feminist writing when I was at university and loved the work of, of several French feminists. Well, I loved Hélène Sixou and Lucie Rigaret and Monique Wittig and Julia Kristeva. I loved them. I found them, obviously, they're incredibly challenging and difficult. Um, but I was fascinated and, and, and totally absorbed by, by these very, very exciting ways of considering literature through that prism of this, this radi- these radical feminist ideas. I was so amazed when I moved to France to discover that nobody studied these women in university and very few people had even heard of them. Absolutely extraordinary. Where these were, I won't go so far as to say they were household names in the UK, but I came to France. I also discovered to my horror when I first came to France quite a long time ago that women my age rejected the idea of feminism, rejected, didn't want to call themselves feminists. It was a bit of a dirty word. It was very strange. Now things have changed hugely now. Yeah, yeah. It's going back to that traditional trope that the French boast about and is is totally, in my opinion, totally untrue. But they boast that, you know, they have a very, that they hate this idea of feminism because men and women are different. And that's just part of the beauty of French culture is this dance between men and women. And so, So there's just this traditional rejection of the label of feminism. But I have noticed now that young people really, really 
powerfully believe now in, in feminism. Perhaps it's, it, you know, it's been been commercialised, it's part of, you know, it's a, it's a function of late capitalism probably. So one should probably be a little bit sceptical about how widespread it is. But nonetheless, there is no rejection of the, of the term anymore as there used to be. So things are finally, but as I say, things move terribly, glacially slowly in this country. And finally, young women are, are, are proud to call themselves feminists and that's a wonderful thing. Springora's abuser skillfully uses language and ideas as tools of psychological manipulation. He conflates the paedophilia of ancient Greece when tutors fucked their pupils, saying it was a form of educative enlightenment, the 18th century libertinage made famous by les liaisons dangereuses, and the sexual revolution of the 60s. Have you ever experienced psychological and emotional manipulation at the hands of a powerful man? I doubt there's a woman on earth who can't, who who could really say they hadn't. She had not experienced that kind of manipulation. Certainly when I was a student, various tutors I had and professors I encountered certainly treated me in a way that, that I now realise really diminished me intellectually as a way of exerting power. So yes, I have. I don't, like I said, I doubt there's a woman on earth who hasn't. But there are degrees, there are degrees. And that where Springora is concerned, of course, it's, it's well, it goes into a, a severe abuse. I suppose it's really worth pointing out that she, uh, by, the end of, by the end of consent, she's understood that what made her so, what Matzneff sought in his prey were very fragile young women, women who came from broken homes where the parents young women where the parents had somehow failed to was somehow not had, had not managed to hold on to them and these girls were kind of slipping through the cracks at school and slipping through the cracks socially and desperate for some kind of recognition desperate for love actually so she does recognize that that you know there was a specific kind of person that he was always seeking out yes because there is a difference it's one thing an older man and a younger woman but he, at the end of the book, it's, it's horrendous when she discovers that he goes to the Philippines and basically fucks little eight-year-old boys, etc. So he obviously is a very, very unwell, he's a very disturbed, sick man. I mean, he is actually a paedophile. And, and, and he's, as I said at the beginning, he's going to be in court in September. And also, didn't he write a book in the 70s in praise of under-16s? It was some extraordinary to think a book was published praising younger flesh and he talked about it on television do you know a bit about that i was amazed to read that well that's i mean that tells you so much about the france of the time it tells you so much about the cultural elite when consent came out last year in french i asked around and no one had really heard of him he was a very 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 marginal figure on the french literary scene however published by gallimard which is a you know, a blue ribbon publisher in france so yeah, he wrote this. He wrote this pamphlet, really, which obviously I haven't seen. You can't get. I mean, you can't get hold of his books, even if you wanted to. Now he wrote this pamphlet called "The Under 16s It's all. It's all about him, isn't it? It's all about him. He's just not even thinking about them. They're sort of objects for his pleasure. It's absolutely. It is. That is obscene. Very narcissistic, isn't it? I mean. It... He talks about young under 16-year-olds. He says they are the real third sex. He has no concern with whether they're boys or girls. What, it, what, it, what he finds sexually attractive is their age. 
And he literally describes that as the third sex. So he, he had this whole formula, this whole intellectual formula to justify his stance. It's all about him. And, and completely, completely false. The relationships, the dynamics of his relationship with Springora are based on such exploitation, pretending to be love. But of course, she was too young and too inexperienced and too desperate for love, in fact, and too desperate for a man in her life because her father had completely left at this point. She was she was just too young to be able to distinguish between manipulation and love. And by the time she could, it was too late. She was she was and he had completely got hold of her and was and tr- and didn't let her go. Even when she told him that she wanted to end the relationship, he still pursued her and wrote about her in multiple books. I mean, he stole her. He stole her soul through his through his books. And in fact, it's worth pointing out that he has just brought out another book, which he had to publish privately, obviously, because no one will touch him anymore, called Vanessa Virus. Vanessa Virus? Non, mais c'est incroyable, ça. And it's his response. Oh, yeah. He's so... He's, he's just unspeakably, unspeakably vile. And it's worth pointing out that he names the people who continued to show him loyalty as his friend through this whole last year. And one of them is Catherine Millet. One of them is Bernard-Henri Lévy. And one of them is Alain Finkelkraut. So these are the three people who have stuck by him through the last year, which tells you a huge amount about French intellectual, French intellectual life. It's so shocking. This, this is not ideology intellectual. This is quite literally just power over power over coercive control i mean this is where the intellect just takes over everything what about the heart the soul the body the respect it's extraordinary i think that for some for some people liberty in the broadest possible sense of the term counts for more than anything else but what about the liberty of the person, excuse me, who's being fucked, the young person? I mean, how can they justify I mean, it would be interesting to have a discussion with them. One of the things that she delves into in her book is, you know, is it she did, she, she deals with the fact and she confronts the fact of her own complicity in, a, in her relationship with Matt Sneff. And she says, you know, how could I see myself as a victim when I willingly gave myself to him? Because she doesn't understand until many years later that it is not possible to consent for a girl of 14 to consent to a sexual relationship with a man of 50. But it takes her many, many years to believe in that. So I, I imagine these, you know, these intellectuals who still support him still believe in the absolute liberty, the absolute liberty of the human, of the human spirit. I think that's probably what they would claim. To be fair, I also have quite a lot of friends my age who absolutely consider themselves to be feminist, but who are completely opposed to the notion of statutory rape. Women, they don't believe that it should be brought into law. So, so that tells you how deep-seated the culture of consent is in this country. As a translator, you have to understand at least two cultures well. Do you have any examples of where those cultures respond differently to shared assumptions and norms and make decisions differently? Well, I think we've just been talking about that, haven't we? Really good example of how difficult it is if you're not in that culture, how impossible it is to understand it. A translator is faced by singular challenges when translating literature in terms of fidelity to the meaning and intent, language and tone and the period. 
What were the particular issues you had to deal with when translating consent? It wasn't a difficult book to translate in that sense. Um, there were occasional uh, words and phrases that I, I had to uh, I had to unpack because they just made no sense, but they did matter. There was one there's one word, mondain, which is so interesting, and dîner mondain, which would mean trans- you would translate it literally as a worldly dinner or a sophisticated dinner but it doesn't work first of all you'd never you'd never use those two words like that you'd never say that and second of all it does not convey what a dîner mondain in the heart of Saint-Germain-des-Prés really is and I had to unpack it I had to write it and and it came out in a very very long wordy phrase that I that soon as I'd written it I was like no that's absolutely perfect because there was no other way of conveying it. And I, I so, so the French says, you know, he was, uh, Mats Neville was, this man was so comfortable in this, in the context of a dîner mondain. And I translated it as he, something like he was totally at ease in the strictly codified rules of contemporary, of Parisian society, something like that. Super wordy. But I had to express it because the codified rules of, of French social interaction have their equivalent in the aristocracy or amongst royalty, but not in North London, not amongst the North London chattering classes. It's very different. And I know that because I know the North London chattering classes. So, so that's a, that was a very good example of the occasional moment, which was extremely important to explain and difficult. Consent is beautifully written. It is disturbingly cool and calm and not at all sensationalist with subtle changes of voice as the author moves between the 14-year-old and adult woman looking back. How does the author pull it off? That's a very good question. She's a very good writer. She has, I suppose, she's managed to channel both anger and compassion and that's a really, it's a really impressive feat actually because she shows genuine compassion for the child that she was but she's also her, her She's so angry, but she, she's brilliant at switching between those two registers. And I suppose she pulls it off because she's an adult. She's a very successful adult. She managed, after years of therapy, she's, she's very happily in a relationship with somebody. She has a child. I think having a child, actually, seems to have been a very significant moment for her because she says that, you know, there was, a, she, there was always this 14-year-old, this angry, hurt ruined 14-year-old, was always her inside her, even as she was much, much older. But when she had a child, she writes about how you simply can't do that anymore. You can't remain that angry 14-year-old. You have to find a way to be compassionate to yourself in order to become a good mother. So it's rather beautiful how she describes that. And I think, so, so, so clearly a lot of things that happened in her life made her, gave her the ability to Uh, distance herself enough from the story to be able to write it down in a very literary way. She's very successful in writing it down as as something that's not just a abuse memoirs sort of. But this this, this is one of those memoirs that goes far beyond that and is actually a very satisfying work of literature. How has consent been received in the UK and US? Absolutely fantastically, really joyously positive reviews. I'm delighted. I'm delighted for I'm delighted for Vanessa because I think she really deserves it. It's wonderful. And it's obviously so nice for me to be associated with such a fabulous book. And often as a translator you're kind of 
forgotten about, but the reviews have all been really kind about the translation as well. Could you finish with a reading of one page or so that exemplifies the essence of the writing and style of consent? One evening, my mother dragged me along to a dinner party to which some well-known literary figures had also been invited. Initially, I refused to go point blank. The company of her friends had become as excruciating to me as that of my classmates from whom I was increasingly turning away. At the age of 13, I was becoming a recluse. She insisted, grew angry, used emotional blackmail. I had to stop moping around on my own with my books. And anyway, what had her friends done to me? Why didn't I want to see them anymore? Eventually, I gave in. He sat at the table at a 45-degree angle, a conspicuously striking presence. He was handsome, of indeterminate age. His head, scrupulously maintained, was entirely bald, which made him look a little like a Buddhist monk. His eyes followed my every movement, and when I finally dared to turn toward him, he threw me a smile, which I confused for a paternal smile because it was the smile of a man, and I no longer had a father. With his brilliant comebacks and effortlessly well-chosen quotations, this man, who I soon realised was a writer, knew how to charm his audience and clearly had an instinctive mastery of the strictly codified rules of Parisian social interaction. Every time he opened his mouth, His fellow guests hooted with laughter, but it was on me that his eyes, amused, mesmerising, lingered. No man had ever looked at me like that before. I caught his Slavic-sounding name in passing, which immediately aroused my curiosity. It was just a simple coincidence, but I owe my surname and a quarter of my blood to the Bohemia of Kafka, whose metamorphosis I had just read enthralled. Moreover, at this precise point in my adolescence, I considered Dostoevsky's novels to be the absolute apex of literary achievement. A Russian surname, the lean physique of a Buddhist monk, preternaturally blue eyes, that was all it took to seize my attention. Normally, during dinners like this, I would disappear off to another room where I would let myself be lulled by the murmur of conversation, half-listening, apparently distracted, but in reality, acutely attentive. This particular evening... I brought a book to read, and after the main course, I took refuge in the small sitting room off the dining room where cheese was now being served. The interminable succession of courses at no less interminable intervals. I was trying to read my book, but the words grew blurred. It was impossible to concentrate, and I suddenly sensed, from where he was sitting all the way at the other end of the room, G's eyes caressing my cheek. His voice, with its slight lilt, neither masculine nor feminine, insinuated itself inside me like a spell, an enchantment. Every inflection, every word, seemed addressed to me alone. Was I the only person to notice? His presence was electric. Thank you very much for your time, Natasha, and for giving us invaluable insights into Vanessa Springora's memoir. Thank you so much for having me. Consent by Vanessa Springora, translated by Natasha Lehra, is published by Fourth Estate and Harper Veer. It is available from online outlets such as Waterstones Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Bookshop.org. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit the online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to translator Natasha Lehra for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this episode of The Bookblast podcast.